if you would grab your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home with you. That can be our gift to you. We would love for you to uh, be able to have that and to be able to read the scriptures on your own. Um, We're in a a series that we've just begun a bit ago on the book of Acts, and um, we're taking a pause because uh, throughout the book of Acts, there's a couple things that are uh, kind of inherent to the Spirit of God moving among a people. Um, Sometimes you see miraculous gifts, so you see tongues, people speaking in tongues, or you see healings. Sometimes you see speaking and teaching with power, right? You see like in Acts chapter 2, Peter's message that is uh, this profound message where thousands come to faith. But what you see consistently every time the Spirit of God moves, among a few other things, is a spirit of generosity. There's a heart of uh, otherwardness that comes upon the people of God when the Spirit comes. You see it in Acts chapter two, you're gonna see it again in Acts chapter four, but throughout the book, you're gonna see as the Spirit moves, he's creating generosity among his people. So we're just gonna take a short pause for the next four weeks, and we're gonna dig into this practice series on generosity. Uh, As Jonah said, there are practice guides as you walk out, so I encourage you to grab one of those, um, or you can also access it online if you would rather. Uh, But the goal of this, let me remind you, is that, yes, that we would do the practice of generosity, but it's important for us to get, if you've not been with us during practice series before, the goal is not that we would do the practice. So my hope is not that you would become generous people. Now, I hope that's a byproduct. That would be nice. But it's the, the goal is not that you would become generous any more than the goal is that you would be a person of the word who studies the scriptures or a person of prayer who engages in the presence of Jesus. Uh, those are really important, good things, but they're means to the end, and the end is Christ-likeness, that we would become more and more like him. We spend time in the word not just so that we know the word, but so that we would become like Jesus. We spend time in prayer, not just so we would be devoted to prayer, but so that we would be formed and shaped into his likeness. Generosity is the same thing. My goal is not that we would be more generous people, but that we would recognize that we serve a generous God who is sponsoring generosity within us. All of that to say, I'm not gonna ask for money today, okay? Just so you're ready, that's not coming. Maybe next week, we'll see. Just kidding. That's not, that, that's not the heart of this series. The point of this series is that we would generate uh, within us, that the Spirit would generate in us the generosity that comes from serving a generous God. And so, um, this morning, we're going to look at a very odd passage for the beginning of a series on generosity, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because we're called to be like Jesus. And one way um, to describe becoming more like Jesus is becoming people of love. Jesus, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment, he answered with two commandments, you probably remember. Uh, He answered first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus described love as the core of what it meant to be an apprentice, a faithful follower of God, a faithful follower of Jesus. And so, if love is the end goal, the first thing we need to do is define our terms. 
Because in English, love's a tricky term, right? Like if we just hung out through the day today, it's very likely I would say all of the following. I love burritos. I love my family. I love that song that Jacob led this morning. I love grilling on my back deck. Now, hopefully those mean slightly different things, right? My family at least hopes that they mean slightly different things. <laughs> that, that the way that we express love, we use the same word, but we mean a whole bunch of different stuff. Well, the same thing was true in uh, the first century. There were a variety of different words that are translated love for us, and you're probably familiar with the Greek word agape. Agape is the kind of love that Jesus said was the, the goal of the Christian journey, the, the goal of spiritual formation, that we would be people of not just love in the generic term, but people of agape. Um, agape we're going to define as a self-giving love that wills the good of another more than self. So there, there's an outward vector to agape. It's about you, not me. Uh, Dr. Gary Moon calls our regular status of living the egoic operating system. I love that. It's like um, ego at the center, and I operate with just coming back to me all the time. Agape is turning that on its head and moving out from me as the center to others as the center. That's the heart of what Jesus did and what it means to follow Jesus. Dallas Willard, when he described spiritual maturity, said that for us to be spiritually mature, it means that we would naturally and effortlessly do what Jesus would do in any given situation. That spiritual maturity means that without a lot of work, just the natural and effortless flow of living, I do what Jesus would do. So effortlessly, I would love other people. Including, by the way, Jesus was really clear, our enemies, the people who are opposed to us. It would be easier for us, naturally and effortlessly, to love people who are opposed to us than to hate them or to be opposed to them. Which, so far, is probably not a big surprise to you. It's not like you walked in and you were like, I can't believe I came to church and he told us to love people. That's unbelievable. I was not expecting that. It came out of left field, right? Like, of course, loving people, like you're, you're expecting that the call of the gospel is for us to love people. So of course you do that perfectly, right? Why not? Why is it that it's so hard for us to love people? Well, let me give you a clue. People are annoying. That's why. Because people don't do the kind of stuff that you want them to do. Like, I would be able to love people perfectly if, for instance, the people I shared my home with would clean up after themselves. For instance, that would help me. Um, I would be able to love people if the people who were driving in front of me ever learned to drive in an appropriate way, right? I, I, I would love people better. I would love people better if people thought in efficient, natural, straight line ways rather than saying weird things out of the left field that don't really make any sense, right? Like, there's all of this stuff because I, I will love people if they act like I want them to act, which is not the way that Jesus lived, believe it or not. If I'm going to naturally and effortlessly love the way that Jesus did, it's going to require a level of transformation in me that's pretty profound. And I think that's true for all of us. And so I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, we're going to parachute kind of into the middle of the passage. Uh, Earl's going to come and read for us. He's going to start in verse 7 and read through verse 18, 
And we're really going to zero in on that last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but I want you to hear the context of all of it. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in the letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are bold. Not like Moses, who would put up a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, in this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thank you, Earl. Like I said, it's a dense passage, and uh, we're going to try to get a bit of context in it, but then we're going to get towards the end of the passage for our purposes for today. So I want to look first at the two different covenants that are being compared and contrasted uh, in the beginning of this passage. So we're going to look at two covenants. We're going to look at the process of transformation, and then we are going to look at the source of generosity, the heart of the passage and why it fits into this practice series. So two covenants, uh, the process of transformation, the source of generosity. I was hoping I was going to get to see you the whole time, but alas, there we go. I get light instead. Um, so let's start with the two different covenants. Um, the, the complexity of the language at the beginning can kind of get in the way, but there are, uh, there's, there's a, a compare and contrast that Paul is doing for us between the old covenant and the new covenant. He's using a story from Moses from Exodus chapter 34. We don't have time to read that story today. Uh, if you're not familiar with that story, it's very worthwhile to go back and read through it. I'll let you do that on your own time. But he's comparing and contrasting that story from uh, Moses in Exodus 33, where the glory of God showed up in a powerful and profound way, with the way that we encounter the glory of God now on this side of the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus in the new covenant. So he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. 
And there's two primary things that he's contrasting. The first one is location. So he's talking about the fact that, that for Moses to encounter the glory of God, he needed to go to the top of the mountain, and in this specific place, at a specific time, the Lord came and ministered to him, and he was exposed to the glory of God in a specific way, at a specific point, in a specific time. He's contrasting that with our life in the new covenant, and he's saying, do you realize you don't have to go to the mountain anymore? You don't need to climb a mountain. You don't need to get to the right place at the right time. But rather, the Holy Spirit is with you all the time. You have the presence of God. You just need to put it on your phone long enough to pay attention to it. Like, he's there with you. Like, if you just stop and wherever you are, in the mountain or in the valley or uh, on the way to work or as you're interacting in your family, as you're doing life, You have the opportunity to engage with the presence of God, the very same presence of God that Moses had to climb the mountain at the specific time in a specific place to be able to engage. So the the place of our encounter with glory changes, but also the purpose of our encounter with glory changes. So in the Old Covenant, God has given his half of the covenant to Moses and then to the people. And the way it worked was there was a God part of the covenant and there was a human part of the covenant. The God part of the covenant was, here's the law. And the human part of the covenant was, work hard to obey the law, right? Like he told us what he wants, now we're supposed to do it. It's all our effort to try to do what's right. That was the heart of the old covenant. But now Paul's saying there's a, there's a new covenant, and in this new covenant, it's not that you no longer have a role, but now the power of the Spirit is fused with your effort to begin to change you so that you want to fulfill the law and you're capable of fulfilling the law because the covenant now is not just yours, but it's kept by God on your behalf. So there's this uh, total change in essence of what the covenant used to be versus what it is now. And Paul's comparing and contrasting the two. And he's saying, like, pay attention to this because the old covenant, you had to go climb the mountain to meet with God. And then once you climbed the mountain and met with God, you had to behave. Now, God's actually meeting you in your behavior as you seek after him, and he's changing your heart, and he's changing your ability to be able to enter into the covenant. He's actually working on your behalf. He's actually, he uses the term, he's transforming you. He's changing you. And so that's going to fast forward us to the last verse in 2 Corinthians 3, which is where we're going to dwell today. Again, there's a lot that's in here outside of our purposes for today, but really interesting stuff. I'll hit some of that on the podcast this week, but I want us to fast forward to uh, verse 18. Paul says this, so we all, comparing and contrasting Old Covenant and New Covenant, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So he says there's three aspects of this process of transformation that we're invited into. Uh, Because we are now in the new covenant, there are three things that are going to happen. First, we're going to behold the glory of God. That word in Greek is actually a word that references a mirror. And so there's a lot of debate among theologians as to whether Paul's saying, do we look at the glory of God or do we reflect the glory of God? Do Do we see or reflect? Do we behold or reflect? And uh, the short answer is um, the, the majority of theologians say yes. 
both. And, and that's not a shortcut. It really is, uh, it's both things. So like if you go to the New Living Translation, they will translate it with both words. They'll actually say, uh, behold and reflect the glory of God. Because uh, really what's happening here is Paul's saying, as you look into the glory of God, there, there's this sense that you're seeing him, you're encountering his glory in a way that would have been profound to the First Testament Jewish mind. You're able to see the glory of God and you're becoming like him as you're beholding him. And that then leads to the second concept. So he says you behold the glory of God and then you're being transformed. That word is metamorpho in Greek and it's uh, the word where we get metamorphosis, the whole uh, change in essence kind of idea. So it's the, the idea of changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Or to use a biblical example, if you go to Isaiah chapter 55, the prophecy of Isaiah has this beautiful section where he talks about the word of God coming down to the earth like rain and as the word of God lands on us, we are changed in essence. He says that the, the briar becomes like the myrtle and the thorn becomes cypress. That the, the water of God lands on the thorn and it literally grows as a cypress tree. That the word of God lands on the briar and it becomes myrtle. These are, these are transformation in essence. And what Paul's saying here is that we don't get better through Jesus. We actually are, are completely different in essence. When he says we behold the glory of God and we are transformed into his likeness, it, it should be challenging the view of change that most of us have. Because most of us come to the gospel with the hope that we would become slightly better people. And Paul says, that's pathetic. Like, that's, that's not nearly enough. We don't come to the gospel in the hopes that we might be a little bit more generous or a little bit more loving or a little bit more moral or a little bit more focused on other people. We come to the gospel so that we in our sinful flesh, the, the egoic operating system that's centered on us thing, would die and that the new life in Christ would come, that we would be changed in essence. And so there's a transformation here that's happening. And Paul says, as we behold the glory of God, you are going to change. You're going to be transformed. You're going to become a totally different person. And so we should be like on the edge of our seat with Paul, beholding the glory of God. We're going to be transformed into his likeness. When, Paul? When, when, when? And Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. So my translation is, it's going to take a while. So it's not like, it's not an overnight thing. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's not like I'm going to go to bed, I put my Bible under my pillow, I'm going to go to sleep, and in the morning it's all going to absorb straight into me, and I'm going to now know everything. It's not going to work like that. It's not going to, I'm going to have an encounter with God, and now all of a sudden I'm a completely different person. What Paul's saying is, over time, from one degree of glory to another, there's, there's going to be a transformation that's going to happen. And it's not probably going to be from Monday to Tuesday. But it will probably be from 2023 to 2025. It will probably have been from 2017 to 2023. Like you can look back or look forward and see this change happening because as we behold the glory of God, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And so it's fair and right for us to ask the question, if I look back and I look at me now and I don't see any change and people around me don't see any change, 
then I should really ask, am I beholding the glory of God? Because as I behold the glory of God, I will change. It doesn't mean everything, and it doesn't mean everything perfectly. But change will happen. That's what Paul's saying. That transformation will come as you behold the glory of God. But then he says, that's not something that you can do. He says it this way, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What's the source of that change that's happening and the ultimate generosity that flows from us? What's the source? Well, the source is God himself. This comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now, hear me really carefully. I'm not saying that you and I don't have a role. I'm not saying that there's not effort on our part. But the the heavy lifting, as it were, is done by the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Um, There's a false dichotomy that's often put out there um, between the gospel of grace and the gospel of works. And I'm not sure that they can be separated quite that easily. Um, The reality is, yes, all of the transformation is through grace, unmerited favor given to us by God, and we didn't earn it, and there's nothing that we can do to deserve it. But he is asking us to take part in the process. Your role is to behold the glory of God. Your role is to put yourself in a position where you can see and engage and experience the glory of God. Now, that sounds really simple, but if you think over the course of your week, there's an awful lot of stuff that you've beheld that's not the glory of God. The intentionality that we are to have is to put ourselves in front of the glory of God, that we would see and experience his goodness. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying no more about the love of God. There's a lot of people who know a lot about the love of God who are not very loving. And I'm not going to name names. You can figure that out on your own. But we know people like that, right? Who know the stuff, but they're not changed. Or, as A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about us is our view of God. That's the beginning of the knowledge of the holy. The way we think about God is the most important thing about us. If all we do is think about a God who is judgmental and filled with wrath, it shouldn't surprise us that we become kind of nasty people, right? Like, that's the way it works. So what Paul's saying is, with intentionality, behold the glory and the beauty and the goodness and the love of God. And what will happen is, you will, over time, be changed into his image. Now, what's fascinating is there's science that backs this up. This is not just scripture. I was actually talking to a guy this week who is in the field of neurotheology. Someday I'm going to study enough to get that on my business card. That would be awesome. Um, But in this field, he basically is uh, pairing together what the scriptures say and the way our brain works. And we were talking about the way that the neurons in our brain, this is way outside of my pay grade, so I'm probably going to say it wrong. If you actually know what I'm talking about, then you can correct me later. But the way that he explained it to me is there are neurons in our brain that as we behold something, we change and become like that thing that we're beholding. They're mere neurons that begin over time to change us, not in an instant moment, but over a period of time, we change to become more and more like that thing. So as we are encountering the beauty of God, the beauty of God begins to rub off on us. Like our brain literally starts to change so that as we encounter the joy of God, we become more joyful people. As we encounter the love of God, we become more loving people. And and so this process of change begins to happen as we behold the glory of God. He's the source. We're receiving it. 
Dr. David Benner, in his book, Surrender to Love, which is an excellent book. It's a tiny little one, but uh, dense, full of lots of stuff. This is a long quote, but I think it'll be helpful in this process as we wrap this up. Uh, Benner says this, meditating on God's love has done more to increase my love than decades of effort to try to be more loving. Allowing myself to deeply experience his love, taking time to soak in it and allow it to infuse me, has begun to affect changes that I had given up hope of ever experiencing. Coming back to God in my failures at love, throwing myself into his arms and asking him to remind me of how much he loves me as I am, here I begin to experience new levels of love to give to others. But I must come to love through the cross. Come to love through sin and failure rather than success and self-improvement. It's only when I give up trying to be more loving that God's love can really touch me. It's only when I come to him in the midst of my failures in love that his love can transform me. Which brings us to the last piece of the puzzle. If the glory of God is the source of transformation, we need to recognize that when we encounter the true glory of God, our first response must be, wow, I'm not like that. I don't love like he does. I'm not pure like he is. I'm so different than him. That an encounter with the glory of God should immediately bring us to repentance at the foot of the cross. That we recognize the only way that you and I have the ability to even be in the presence of God is because Jesus has given himself on our behalf. This is not a self-improvement plan because we need to change in essence, not just get better. This is not a self-improvement plan because we don't have anything good to offer. And when we come before the glory of God, we recognize, man, I, I got a lot of brokenness. I got a lot of mess. I got a lot of failure. And it's in that encounter with the glory of God that he begins through the cross to shape us and change us, to transform us, to bring myrtle out of the thorns. So what's all this have to do with generosity? Because some of you are like, you still haven't asked me to write a check. I'm really confused. I'm like, what's going on here? That's why we have a smaller group today, because we publicized that we're starting a generosity series, and everybody was like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that thing. So, um, so what's this have to do with generosity? Here's the thing. If the goal of our spiritual life was that we would give more money away, we could do that really easily. There's lots of motivations for giving money away. There's lots of motivations for giving your time to other people. There's lots of motivations for uh, being available in different ways, for living simply, all of those things. Lots of reasons that you do that. Not just Christian. In fact, lots of them non-Christian. We will never be generous people until we receive the generous love of a generous God. We might give, but it won't be out of generosity. It'll be for some other reason. We may live a life that looks otherward, but it will be self-focused unless we have received from God the love that can transform us from the inside out. And so this week, as we begin the generosity series, we'll talk about all of the other stuff of life, because that's all practical stuff that Jesus taught us about as he taught us about generosity. But we're going to begin by simply contemplating the generous love of a generous God. So the practice guide this week is going to lead you through practices that will literally just ask you to meditate on the the beauty of who God is. 
to stare into, to take time to stare into the glory of God so that we would be transformed. Hopefully not just as this week, but as a habit, as the way that we live our lives. Because as God changes us, then we become generous people, not for the sake of being generous, but for the sake of being more like Jesus. It's the heart of what God's called us to. Amen. And now, people of God, I want to declare over you a prayer that the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians, wrote to the Ephesian church, a different letter, the same apostle. And he prayed this over the church, but I want to declare it over you as a word, so don't receive this just as a prayer, but rather as a declaration, a good word that the Apostle Paul speaks over us thousands of years later. He says this, May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Listen to this. To know the love of God that is beyond knowledge. How about that? That you would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge so that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. You receive the love of God and then take him with you to the world around you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Happy Father's Day. Have a great week.